Well, good afternoon, everyone. Today, we're going to be continuing the, the series that I begun a couple of weeks ago as it pertains to trials, and in particular, why it is that trials happen, why it is that we deal with trials and affliction. So before we begin, let's first go to God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for this time and moment that you have given to us where now we get to go into your word, we get to look upon it, we get to read it, we get to understand it, and we get to um, try and understand why it is, O oh Lord, that you send affliction to us, why you send trials to us. God, I ask that you may equip me as I stand before here as your mouthpiece to speak only the truth as it pertains to this question. I ask God that you may grant unto all of us, Lord, eyes and ears to hear and to receive um, that truth in humility. And Lord, I pray that we may all be edified um, as we seek to understand your providence and your sovereignty as it pertains to the affliction and the trials that you send upon us. So Lord, once again, we're thankful for this time that we get to spend in your word answering this question. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, as I mentioned, you know, we're going to be continuing this study, dealing with trials and affliction, and in particular, why it is that they happen. You know, living in a world that is full of sin, oftentimes we are faced with various bouts of affliction or trials. Had this world been a world that, as the Darwinians suppose, came into being out of nothing and by chance, you know, trying to guess and surmise, you know, why certain rough patches take place in our lives would be futile. It'd be pointless because if what they say is correct, there is no ultimate meaning. And the fact that something bad is happening to you isn't because there's some hidden purpose, but it's just pure, random, meaningless chance. Well, fortunately, we know that that is not the case. We sung it in our psalm today, in Psalm 104, the reality of God upholding all things, making the mountains and all around us. We know from Psalm 100, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. So we know the fact that our universe did not come into being by chance, but by design. Not only do we know that he created the world, but we know that he providentially preserves, governs, and orchestrates all things. There is meaning and purpose to everything that goes on because our God ordained all that comes to pass for a reason. You know, even those things that to us appear random to God is not random. And a perfect example of this comes in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 33, where we read, but a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, that is Ahab, between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. So we see in this passage here that King Ahab was struck by an arrow that was randomly shot by an archer. So to our eyes, it would appear as though Ahab was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He just got a bad look at the draw. Now, 
If that's what you would think, you would be wrong. Because all you have to do is go back just a few uh, verses in the same chapter, chapter 18, verses 18 to 22, to see that this random event was orchestrated by God. Starting in verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 18, we read this. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at remote Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. So the Lord proclaimed disaster against Ahab. The Lord ordained that he would be struck down. That bow being struck at random was only random from the vantage point of man. But to God, he ordained that arrow to that, that arrow would be shot and that it would strike Ahab and that it would kill Ahab. That random shot fulfilled God's purpose. So being that every single act, even those things that appear random to us is ordained by God and that there is purpose behind all that takes place. We as believers, knowing and understanding that can take comfort in knowing that the trials that befall us were not something that happens because we just so happened to, got, to get a bad luck of the draw. It didn't randomly happen. They came upon us for a reason. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is why they are happening. Is there something that we can learn from these trials, from this affliction? And if so, what is it that we're to learn from the trials that come upon us? Well, that is what we're seeking to find out today. Now, when I was last behind this pulpit, we looked at two reasons from the scriptures for why afflictions took place. You know, the first point that we saw was that sometimes afflictions and trials happen to us because we are in sin. Now, there were a couple passages that we that we noted, Psalm 119, um, chief among them, verses 67, where David writes that before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your law. So then David said, I was going astray. I was not following your law. I was not doing that which I know I am to do. And as a result, God, you afflicted me. But because you afflicted me, now I keep your law. And then he goes on in verse 71 of Psalm 119 to say, it is good that I was afflicted. That affliction, that trial that he went through, he saw as good. Why? Because it forced him to course correct. It forced him to go to, to instead of going the path that he was going, which was against the law of God, to now go back on that road. So likewise, for us as believers and Christians, sometimes if we are in sin, guess what? As a loving father, God will discipline us. As a loving father, God will bring affliction and trial to us so that we may repent, so that our eyes may be open to the fact that, man, we are in sin. The second point that we looked at 
was that sometimes trials happen because guess what? God is testing us. Just like God tested Abraham, God likewise oftentimes may test us to see, are we really serious about this faith that we say that we proclaim? Are we either a committed believer or are we more so like the rich young ruler where he will say, oh, I, I keep all the commandments and all of that. But as soon as God tells him, well, if this is the case, sell everything that you own. Are we committed? Sometimes God may test us to see truly, are we committed believers? So those were the two points that we looked at last time that I spoke. Today, we're going to be looking at three points, three reasons Additional reasons why God may bring trials and afflictions upon us. So let's look at this, the next point, point three. You know, oftentimes God may bring about trials in our life as a means of being a testimony to someone else. Have you ever considered that perhaps the trials that you are going through aren't necessarily just for you? but for those around you? See, so often we want to individualize things that we forget that even the trials that seem to only affect us may not only impact us. Whether we like it or not, we live in a watching world and our lives are being viewed by those around us. How we respond to a trial in our life can either positively impact someone else or negatively impact someone else. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 16, to let our light shine so that those who see us may see our good works and glorify God. Well, guess what? Sometimes that light that you have needs to shine even in the midst of a storm. Now, who it is that may benefit from the trials that we go through? Twofold can either be unbelievers or believers. As far as unbelievers go, how they benefit is that in seeing us in our trials, oftentimes God may use that as a means to bring them to Christ. I think a good example of this comes, I, I used um, this book as an example last time I preached, but I'll, I'll use it again because it is a good book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And the example I want to I want to give here comes from a point in the book. If you're familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, so there comes a point to where Christian, as he's going along to the celestial city, he meets a, a man named Faithful, and he and Faithful start walking together, um, going to the celestial city, and they come upon a place called Vanity Fair. Now, Vanity Fair, I mean, Vanity Fair effectively is like America today, just a place full of sin, full of vanity full of wickedness. And needless to say, Christian and faithful were not thrilled at all of having to go through this place full of wickedness, especially given the fact that they left from the city of destruction. While they're there, so because of the fact that they are seeking to be committed Christians, committed believers, you know, that puts them in hot water with the citizens of Vanity Fair to the point that they get arrested, they get put on trial, False witnesses come and start accusing them of things that they never did. And they, being committed Christians, held firm to the word and were arrested. And faithful actually um, was executed 
as a result. Now, eventually, Christian manages to, to escape, and as he escapes and starts to um, continue to go down to Celestial City, so he, come, he meets a person named Hopeful, who just so happened to be in Vanity Fair. And he sees how Christian and Faithful were committed to their faith, and how Faithful even sacrificed his life for the sake of Christ. And in seeing that, that inspired him and caused him to also want to walk with Christian down to the celestial city. So obviously I know that Pilgrim's Progress is fictional, but what we see here, that example is not something that, um, that is without merit when you look throughout church history. I mean, an early church father, Tertullian, has a, a, a very common, uh, popular quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When you look at church history, especially early church history, there is truth to that. The Christians of the early church experienced probably some of the most horrendous persecution because of their faith. They were thrown to lions to be eaten. They were burned. They were crucified. Some were beheaded all because they professed Christ as Lord. Now, you would think that when you see all of this happening, that this would be a deterrent against people wanting to come to the faith. But you would be wrong. The conviction of those people who were willing to die for their faith proved to be the inspiration that moved so many people to Christianity. Earl Cairns, who was a former professor of history at Wheaton College, he writes in his book, Christianity Through the Centuries, that by the year 300, the size of the church at that time was between 5 to 15 percent of the Roman Empire, which at the time, the Roman Empire was, was between 50 to 75 million people. So even if we kind of lowballed it, you, we're talking about about 2.5 million Christians, which is a huge difference from the 120 that were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. All of this taking place during a time of immense persecution. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, again, a letter written to the church in Rome Dealing with persecution, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we see in this passage that Peter is dealing with Christians, again, who are being persecuted. They're being slandered against. Because if you remember from last time, I mentioned that you know, they, were being, they got accused of causing the great fire of Rome by Nero. Now, it would have been easy for the saints to pity themselves and succumb to misery and the trials that they were facing. But Peter tells them to live their lives in such a way that even those who slander them may, as they see their good works, glorify God. Likewise, we Christians, we need to understand that how we live our lives, especially during trials, can cause others to glorify God. Conversely, if we allow ourselves to fall into bitterness and pity, despair, and sin because of our trials, then the name of God can be blasphemed. You know, Paul tells the church in Romans 2 verse 24 that God was being blasphemed because of the conduct of hypocritical Jews. 
And quite frankly, you know, this is one of the things that, especially over the last two years, has frustrated me so much about so many Christians during this COVID era that we're in. Because you would think that during this time, when literally the entire globe is freaking out and worried about their life, about whether they're going to die, about, you know, the, the, the dread of catching this virus, you would think that that would be a time and a moment where believers, people who call themselves Christians, would demonstrate the sincerity of their faith by not succumbing to fear, but standing in the midst of fear and demonstrating to the world that no, we trust our God. Now, many did, but unfortunately, many did not. Continuing along the same kind of train of thought in regards to our affliction, our trials being a means that sometimes God can use to bring about change to an unbeliever. Let, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And let's take a look at an example of a person who was converted through an afflic the affliction of believer. We're talking about jailer, Philippian jailer, if I'm not mistaken. This is Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 34. And we read this, the crowd rose up together against them, them being Paul and Silas, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They weren't complaining. They weren't whining. They were praising God while the prisoners around them were listening. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. You know, so we see in this passage a jailer who was, of course, unconverted, not a believer. And we see Paul and Silas, converts, believers for God. They were arrested. They were thrown in jail. And instead of throwing a pity party, instead of complaining, they prayed to God. They praised him in the midst of the unbelievers around them. And I truly believe because of the fact of that, clearly, obviously, we know in this instance here, the text tells us, of course, that the jailer was asleep as the earthquake was taking place. But 
Rest assured, we know that it wasn't as though the jailer was asleep the entire time. Clearly, at some point, the jailer would have seen Paul and Silas praying, praising God, even though they were arrested in stocks. And then after the earthquake takes place and he was about to commit suicide, who does the jailer go to to ask about salvation? The two people who are praising God, Paul and Silas. And in the providence of God, God saves him, him and his household. So in that same way, you never know, you never know in your trials, in your affliction, in the wrong that's done to you, who is watching? What unbelief is around? And I'm not saying that you conduct yourself for show. Nah, I'm not talking, I'm not asking you to be a hypocrite. What I'm saying is you don't know in how you respond to trials and affliction. Who is there watching? What unbeliever is there watching? And how God may use your response to a trial for the benefit of the unbeliever. Now, it's not just unbelievers that may benefit, but also believers as well. So we see in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through, through 14, Again, Paul, a man certainly used to being in prison, talking about um, this experience. I don't know if this is the same experience as far as him in, in, in Philippi or not, but we read this in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Sadly, most people are cowards and unable to hold their convictions under persecution or trials. Many Christians might have a tiny spark of courage, but fear overwhelms them or holds them back. But when a believer sees another believer hold to their convictions in the midst of difficulty and weather the storm, that oftentimes gives the other person courage to do likewise. That was the case as we see here with Paul, as we see in this passage. His imprisonment, which the enemy assumed would hinder the gospel, actually helped to progress it. Now, this principle doesn't just apply to being persecuted but also in trials in which your faith is being tested. You know, for example, if you were diagnosed with an illness, how you glorify God in the midst of that could serve to benefit another brother or sister in the faith. And to give a, a real-life example of Christians being benefited through the response of another brother being afflicted, I want to give you the story of a man named Horatio Spafford. Some of you may know who that is, some of you may not. But I'll read to you an excerpt from an article written about him from the St. Augustine Record. Horatio G. Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and five children. 
However, they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. Yet God, in his mercy and kindness, allowed the business to flourish once more. On November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner Ville du Havre was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. He told his wife he would join her and their children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the Ville du Havre collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship, the Lochern. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta, and prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will, or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within 12 minutes, the V du Arve slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. So we see in this account a lot of tragedy taking place to a husband and wife, more than most people can deal with. All five children dying tragically. Business you know, um, being affected by a fire. But what's interesting, it was that it was in the midst of this tragedy. It was in the midst of losing all of that, that Horatio penned the lyrics to probably one of the most profound and comforting hymns ever written, not inspired directly by God. It is well with my soul. I want you to think about this. Think about the first, you know, the, the first line. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, no matter my lot, God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So what do you think he was thinking about when he writes, when sorrow like sea billows roll? His family was lost in the sea. But through his pain and sorrow that he went through in losing his business and losing all of his children, he learned to understand that even in spite of all of that, it was still well with his soul. His salvation was still secure. In that hymn, Horatio was reminding us that no matter what happens, if you are in Christ, you are good. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this bless assurance control assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. I mean, how many of you have been comforted by those words throughout your life, during your trials? And this song was written by a man that went through severe trials. See, we all want to hear a testimony, but none of us ever want to be the testimony. So often we are tempted to take the advice of Job's wife and just curse God and die whenever trials take place. 
Rather, what we ought to do, like Paul and Silas, is praise God. Like Horatio, say, it is well with our soul. While again, we don't do this for show, you never know who is watching you glorify God in your affliction. Remember, we are all part of one body. While you may be the one that is personally dealing with the trials, how you deal with them can oftentimes benefit others within the body of Christ. Paul was the one who was imprisoned, but the Philippian church benefited and was encouraged by his imprisonment. Horatio and his wife were the one that lost their business and all their children. But millions of people have benefited from the words that were written as a result of that. Likewise, it may be you that is singularly dealing with a personal trial or affliction, but don't discount the fact that your affliction and how you deal with it may benefit those around you. And oftentimes, God may be using your affliction for that very purpose. So now, segueing away from, from that point, I do want to now kind of pivot into another reason why it is that God may bring about trials in our life. And it's because God oftentimes might be teaching us to be content. Paul writes in continuing in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. He says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You know, what's interesting to me in this passage is what Paul says in verse 11. He says that he has learned to be content in whatever circumstances he's in. It was through his circumstances that Paul endured that he learned how to be content. It was through enduring poverty that Paul learned how to be content with poverty. You know, sometimes it takes some level of adversity in our lives to learn how to be content with what God has already given us. It would true, be much easier for us to just be content without having to go through adversity. But as I mentioned in my first sermon, we, we're hard-headed. I know I am. And then even though we may see in the Bible to be content, oftentimes for us to truly know what it means to be content, sometimes God has to teach us the hard way through experience. Now, one of the problems, as I see it in our culture, is that contentment is perceived to be a bad thing. The good thing in our culture is to never be satisfied. I mean, think about it. At work, if you had a person that was a hard worker, was doing well, but was content in where he was, you know, the assumption is that, well, see, that guy, he's, a, he's in a go-getter. He's lazy. For some odd reason, we have made contentment 
like almost analogous to a lack of ambition. And since we have done that, when a person is working hard and has enjoyed success by his hard work, he can't, by the world standard, even enjoy his success. He can't even take a step back to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And it's so interesting to me because Solomon writes about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. He says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. How many people have we come across who are like this? How many of you possibly are like this? Where you can have everything that you can want, that you need, that you could want. But you are still not satisfied. You're still complaining. As Solomon writes, God has not given them the ability to enjoy what they have. In other words, they lack contentment. One of the problems is that we act like contentment is a byproduct of laziness. And that's not the case at all. Contentment and laziness are not analogous, nor is contentment a byproduct of it. But where I think the problem comes from is, as oftentimes is the case, we divorce biblical contentment or contentment from God, from the Bible and its definition. You know, if you are to be content from a biblical standpoint, it is because you are doing all that God calls you to do and you are satisfied in the providence of God and granting you whatever success or lack thereof that you may have. But, for example, if you are doing the bare minimum at work just to not get fired, it's not because you're content. You are lazy at that point in time. But, however, if you put in an honest day's work, you're doing everything that you're called to do. You're, effectively, you're applying Colossians 3.23. Just doing your work heartily for the Lord and not for man. And you are at the level that you are. Contentment is necessary. Because if you're not content, discontentment will cause you to become bitter. And here's the thing. When you learn how to be content, when you find out, as Paul says, the secret of contentment, the ability for Satan to manipulate you through dissatisfaction is nearly impossible. I want you to think about this. Like, how many people whom we may have at one time considered to be a Christian, how many people have been led astray simply because of a lack of contentment? How many politicians have used people's lack of contentment to cause them to do things or vote for things that are counterintuitive, counterproductive? How many marriages have been broken because of a lack of contentment? How many people have destroyed their own bodies because of a lack of contentment? If you, as a husband, are satisfied with your wife, you will not be led astray into the arms of another woman. However, if you have not learned to be content with the wife that God has given you, as soon as you come across a woman that has whatever you feel your wife is lacking, you will leave what you have for what could be. But see, when you are satisfied with where you are in life, whether good or bad, because you know that it has come from the hand of a sovereign and involved God, you won't get upset. You won't be bitter. You certainly will not fall for Satan's manipulation. 
Now, let's bring this back to the topic of adversity because that's the reason for this sermon today. Contentment ought to be something that we practice all the time. The problem is that we refuse to be content with anything. God could give us all that we need and most of even what we want, and we're still not satisfied. You know, to put it bluntly, we act like spoiled children. We act like spoiled brats. And being that God's will for our lives, 1 Thessalonians 4, is our sanctification, he will oftentimes remove those things from our lives so that we can learn to be content. He will remove those things that we may desire so that we can learn to be content. If you have been fortunate to have a lot of wealth, and soon that wealth that God has given you, you start to think of as your safety net, God will take away that wealth so that one, you can actually remember who is your safety net, who is your provider, and two, you can learn to appreciate the little that God has given you. Trials and adversity has a, you know, has a great way of reminding you what's really important. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, this. He says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was cut off to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will not, I will boast. But on my behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. But because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we see in this passage, the Apostle Paul talking about a thorn in the flesh that he received in order to keep from exalting himself. Now, Paul never specifically tells us what this thorn is. What we do know is that Paul asks God three times to remove it. And each time God responds by saying that his grace is sufficient for Paul. Paul had to learn to be content with the affliction that he received because God was not going to remove it. God, that affliction was exactly what God needed to put upon Paul in order for him to remain humble and remember where his power to do all that he did came from. As a result, Paul says that he is content with weaknesses. He was content with insults. He is content 
with persecutions and distresses and difficulties for Jesus' sake. The affliction that he went through enabled him to learn to be content with whatever other trials he went through for the sake of Christ. And just as Paul needed for God to ordain the thorn in the flesh to be sent to him in order for, that he may learn contentment, sometimes God must send us a thorn in our flesh or a trial so that we may learn to be content. Contentment oftentimes has to be learned through trials and affliction. Most people don't become content through getting everything they want. They become spoiled brats. People learn contentment from losing those things they treasured or from not getting what they want or from having affliction come upon them to force them to reflect and be satisfied with what they have. And being that God is our father, if we call him our father, as a good father, God will send affliction our way if he knows that it will force us to become content in our circumstances. And it's not merely contentment that is oftentimes learned in trials like this. It is also the reality of remembering what is most valuable in our lives. And this brings us to the final point that I want to, to discuss today, the final reason for today why trials happen. Now, I said this earlier. Trials and adversity have a way of reminding you what's really important. Sometimes you can think that your job is of utmost importance until you lose your job. Sometimes you can think that your health is of utmost importance until your health starts to fade. Sometimes you can think that your family is of utmost importance until they start to abandon you or they tragically pass away. Sometimes the trials that God sends our way force us to consider what is truly most valuable and without equal in our lives. Now, the question that we got to ask ourselves is, what is most valuable? And to answer that, I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. This is a passage that I read last time I preached, but I want to read it again uh, because it contains that answer. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see in this passage here that Peter is praising God, and he notes how in mercy we were born again through Jesus being raised from the dead. He notes that there is an inheritance that we have, that the exiles had, and that we also have. And this inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. This inheritance is stored up in heaven and being guarded by God himself. This passage is so important for us to remember because the Christians were, who were suffering, perse were per suffering persecution at that point in time. And Peter wanted for them to have their hopes set. Not on the things of this world, which are perishable and defiled and fading and can be taken away, 
but on that which will never perish or fade and can never be taken from them. Peter was effectively directing them through their affliction to focus their mind on what was most valuable, Jesus Christ and their salvation. Christ was their treasure, not their job, not their children, not their spouse, not their house, not their money, not their intellect, not their notoriety. Christ was their treasure, was their ultimate treasure. Their joy was in him and his redemptive work, which they possessed. If they can have their minds focused on that, they cannot give in to frustration or depression or anger. See, those emotions come when you lose sight of that ultimate prize that you as a believer possess. hate to use myself as as an example, but listen, as all of you know, um, the last few months for me has certainly not been, from an outward standpoint, the most positive. As all of you know, those things which were most dear to me have been taken away from me. You know, one day, you know, you're in a house full of noise, full of commotion, full of chaos, and then the next day it's completely empty and completely quiet. Now, whenever I sing, sit and I think about what isn't there, who isn't there, it's easy for me to get angry, to get frustrated, to get confused, to even get depressed. But see, the problem is that those emotions that I feel, they arise because my focus is in the wrong place. The problem is, is that I'm focusing on what was taken and not what remained. My focus was in the wrong place. See, though I treasured those pearls in my life, they were not the pearl of great price. Even though from one perspective, it may appear as though I may have lost all, from another perspective, I still have everything that I need. See, when you understand that fundamental truth, when you understand the fact that all you need is Christ and that that cannot be taken away from you, when you can understand that, then you, like Paul in Romans 8, can say that I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That comes from truly understanding what your ultimate prize and ultimate treasure is and truly understanding that even if you lost everything, if you have Christ, you have all that you need. There was an old college basketball coach. He's deceased now. His name was Jim Volvano. And he gave a speech probably almost 30 years ago now um, as he was battling cancer. And in this speech that he gave, he had this line. He said, cancer can take away all my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind, it cannot touch my heart, and it cannot touch my soul. So I want to take that one step further. Trials and affliction can take away everything that you hold dear. 
It can take away your physical abilities. It can take away your mental capacities. It can take away your family. It can take away your freedom. It can take away your finances. But if you are a child of God, it can never take away your salvation. Nothing can separate you from God. I love what John Calvin says as it pertains to this passage in 1 Peter. He writes this. He says, it, but it seems somewhat inconsistent when he says that the faithful who exulted with joy were at the same time sorrowful, for these are contrary feelings. But the faithful know by experience how these things can exist together, much better than can be expressed in words. However, to explain the matter in a few words, we may say that the faithful are not logs of wood, nor have they so divested themselves of human feelings, but that they are affected with sorrow, fear, danger, and feel poverty as an evil, and persecutions as hard and difficult to be borne. Hence, they experience sorrow from evils, but it is so mitigated by faith that they cease not at the same time to rejoice. The sorrow does not prevent their joy, but on the contrary, give place to it. Again, though joy overcomes sorrow, Yet it does not put an end to it, for it does not divest us of your, our humanity. And hence it appears what true patience is. Its beginning, and as it were, its root, is the knowledge of God's blessing, especially of that gratuitous adoption with which he has favored us. For all who raise hither their minds find it an easy thing calmly to bear all evils. For whence is it that our minds are pressed down with grief, except that we have no participation of spiritual things? In other words, when are you most anxious? When you stop thinking about God, when you stop thinking about your treasure that you have in Christ. But all they who regard their troubles as necessary trials for their salvation not only rise above them, but also turn them to an occasion of joy. As Christians... Our pearl of great price is Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate prize. If we have him, we have all that we need. But see, we tend to forget that when life is going smoothly. When you're getting not just all that you need, but all that you want as well. When everything is going our way, we, we tend to forget who is most important. Conversely, if you allow for adversity to overwhelm you and embitter you, you'll tend to ignore God's law. You tend to start to hate God and to resort to sinning, to get out of that adversity. That old saying, desperate times call for desperate measures. See, that, that doesn't work if those desperate measures involve you disobeying God. You know, Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, we read this. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be fool and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. How many of us in our fullness, in getting all that we want, start to forget God? How many of us and our hunger feels like we have to sin in order to satisfy ourselves. I love what Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Why, why was Paul content? Why was he able to say that he's learned to be content? Because his ultimate prize, his ultimate treasure, wasn't the things of this world, but was Jesus Christ. This is why he could say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because if Christ is his ultimate prize, then he does indeed gain when he dies. Because he gets to be with who is his ultimate prize. Matthew Henry, commentating on this passage, he says this. He says, death is a great loss to a carnal worldly man, for he loses all his comforts and all his hopes. But to a good Christian, it is gain, for it is the end of all his weakness and misery and the perfection of his comforts and accomplishment of his hopes. It delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to the possession of the chief good, Christ. Our ultimate possession is Jesus Christ. It's not our health. It's not our family. It's not our money. It's not our job. It's not our spouse. It's not our kids. It's not our skin color. It's not our intellect. It is Jesus Christ. He is our treasure. Sometimes we forget that reality of Christ being our ultimate treasure and we start to place other things on par with him or even sometimes above him. When that happens, if we are a child of God, God will oftentimes remove those things to remind us he is ultimate. Other times, God may force us in a situation where we have to make a decision. Is it God or is it that other thing that you treasure? What matters more to you? You may be in a great paying job, but then one day you are asked to do something that would violate God's law. See, if you care more about your job than about obeying God, you will dishonor God so that you can keep your job. However, if you truly hold God as ultimate, if he is your ultimate treasure, you will honor God and not violate his law for the sake of your job, knowing that even if you may lose this job, God is going to continue to provide for you. When you constantly have in your mind the reality of Jesus Christ as your ultimate treasure, nothing can break you. When Christ is truly regarded in your mind as most ultimate, as most treasured, nothing can break you. That doesn't mean that nothing will happen to you because you will still have to deal with affliction or trials, but you will be able to rise above those trials because you know that even if you have nothing according to the world's vantage point, you have everything according to God's vantage point because you have Christ and he has redeemed you. There are there's still a few more points that I want to highlight as it pertains to why trials happen, but for today, I'm going to end here. But what I want you to consider, especially as I finish and we're about to partake in the Lord's Supper, I want you to consider is what I want you to consider is whether you have truly learned to be content in your circumstances and whether you have truly placed Christ as ultimate in your life. What do you value most? Is it truly Jesus Christ and the redemption accomplished through his work on the cross and the application of that redemption by the Holy Spirit? Is that what you actually value as most important? 
Are you content with knowing that even if your health fails you, your strength fails you, your job gets taken away, your family passes away or, or abandons you, that you are fine because you are in Christ? Are you going to be content with that? Will you be able to proclaim like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or will you rather just curse God? Will you become bitter? If you can't answer that question, then perhaps that trial that you are going through is God's way of forcing you now to answer, forcing you to reflect. Perhaps God is trying to teach you what contentment is really, really looks like. Maybe God is reminding you what ought to be most treasured in your life, him. So my advice, if that is you, is to truly take time to ponder and reflect on what you have valued above Christ. And if it is true that you were never content, I want you to thank God for bringing this affliction upon you so that you can learn contentment. David was able to say in Psalm 119 that it was good that he was afflicted. So if God is using this affliction, if God is using this trial to teach you contentment, praise God for it. Listen, you could be like in Luke 16, you could be like the rich man instead of Lazarus, where you're getting all the things that you want now, no affliction, no trials whatsoever, and then die and go to hell. Or you can be afflicted by God because God is trying to sanctify you. God is trying to teach you something. And then you could praise God that he loves you enough to do that very thing. Listen, it's not that God doesn't want for you to enjoy life or that he doesn't want for you to have good things. It's that God does not want those things to take supremacy over him, plain and simple. He is ultimate. He is our pearl of great price. Even if we die with nothing to our name and our health completely deteriorated, when we are redeemed in Christ, we have a treasure that is more valuable than anything the world has to offer. That is what we need to have in the front of our mind. Sometimes, in order for us to learn this fact, God will send trials and will send affliction. So, again, if that is you, don't waste this affliction. Don't waste the trial that God has brought upon you. But use that as your opportunity to learn to be content, to learn, like Paul says, the secret of contentment. And praise God for the affliction, knowing that he's using that to teach you to treasure him above all things. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.